0: Welcome to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristin Aroot, and I'm Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community. We want kids to make healthy choices around substances, and we encourage them to do that by informing them and parents and the community as a whole about the intrinsic risks of teen use of drugs and alcohol. I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Todd Kerensky, with us today. Dr. Kerensky is the Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Social Health in Weymouth, and he is also the Medical Director for Spectrum Health System's Opioid Treatment Program. Welcome, Dr. Kerensky. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: We would love to hear more about what brought you into this line of work. Could you elaborate?
1: My interest in addiction medicine was piqued uh, during my medical school training where I had formal education in addiction medicine. At that time, I briefly considered entering the field as a career. But as I look back in that moment, I was relatively young, and frankly, I think maybe even relatively naive, and I was influenced a bit by stigma. Where I trained, the providers that were doing this work, in a good way, were in recovery. I enjoyed the work deeply. I connected with all of them, but I, I... was not a user. I had never, um, and I was, of course, not in recovery because I was never a user. And I felt that if I went into the field, that I would be labeled. As I look back on that moment, that was young, naive, and silly. But now I recognize that this is what people experiencing addiction experience every day of their life. Fast forward now, I started out in a career I had matched, which is the process by which medical school trainees get into other fields after medical school to do anesthesiology training in Boston. I experienced an unfortunate occupational accident where I was exposed to radiation in an operating room by accident and was as a result of that disabled for about two years. I was out of medicine. And there was some uncertainty about whether I would practice again. And in that moment, or as that was evolving, I decided that if, when I returned or if I could return, I would do something I had a passion for. This is how I got into addiction medicine. I finished my training, ultimately, in, in internal medicine. I was working as a hospitalist here at South Shore, recognized that there was this epidemic of people coming to the health system looking really for treatment, even though it was being identified as other things, belly pain, pancreatitis, you name it. Putting it all together now, I decided to do a fellowship in addiction medicine, and I've been doing addiction medicine since. And as I hope you will get out of this conversation today, I'm very passionate about reducing stigma, treating people with addiction in an evidence-based way, and improving their lives.
0: You've published papers on everything from preventing opioid overdoses to addiction consultation services. Are you working on anything right now?
1: I'm not doing any formal research. We are doing internal quality review of some major systematic overhauls we've done here at South Shore Health, including rewriting our alcohol withdrawal protocols within the health system. And we are doing a robust quality analysis of the systematic changes that we made there. It's not formal research, um, but we are evaluating those things. We are also, I am interested in in further evaluating how the presence of an addiction medicine consult service has affected my colleagues, the hospitalists, the surgeons, the obstetricians in the hospital to see how it has affected their care and how they view people who are using alcohol or substances.
0: So we know that different substances affect our bodies in different ways. Could you describe, in layman's terms how alcohol, marijuana, and opioids in particular each impact systems in the body.
1: To the extent that I can, I'll, I'll lump alcohol and opioids a little bit together in the sense because they're both depressants, if you will. So they have an overall depressing effect on, on the central nervous system. They do that in different ways, but in general they're, they're both depressants. Opioids can be particularly dangerous because the way they work in the brain um, also can suppress respiratory drive which is how we have so many people in Massachusetts, but really in this country, who have had overdose um, and related morbidity and mortality associated with that. That occurs through opioid receptors in the brain and the spinal cord. Alcohol works on a different set of neurologic pathways and does not produce significant respiratory depression unless you take it at lethal levels. In terms of marijuana, marijuana can have a more sort of myriad effects on, on the central nervous system, but people generally experience sometimes some anxiolytic effect. It can increase somebody's appetite and can lead to, in general, some, sometimes some hallucinogenic properties for some people. It can, as I'm sure we'll talk about in this interview, result in some paranoid ideation people having um, sort of fixed false beliefs while they're under the influence of of marijuana delusions and paranoid ideations where they, they can become quite paranoid.
0: Could you describe the risks associated with combining substances and what some of the most dangerous combinations are?
1: I think this is an incredibly important topic, especially as it pertains to overdose deaths, again, in Massachusetts and in this community. What we know about combining substances is that this presents the most risk to to people who are using, especially opioids and benzodiazepines. Those two in combination are particularly dangerous for overdose because they each independently works to reduce respiratory or breathing drive, and they do so in a synergistic way. What I mean by synergistic way is that when you take one, one of those substances alone, they will reduce your breathing rate. However, when you do them in conjunction or together, you get not an additive effect, but rather more of an exponential effect on reductions in breathing. The same can also happen with opioids and alcohol, but to a lesser extent than with the benzodiazepines. We are also learning more about gabapentinoids, so things like gabapentin or pregabalin, which are relatively commonly prescribed non-opioid medications that are sometimes used for analgesia but have other indications including for seizures and neuropathic pain. Gabapentinoids and opioids in combination also exponentially increase the risk for overdose death.
0: So while there are some commonalities there are certainly different ways that different people can experience the same substance. Is there such a thing as an allergy to substances and if so what does that look like?
1: It's a great question. People can be allergic to pretty much anything. As it pertains to substance use in this community, or related to opioids in particular, it is very rare for people to have a true immunologic allergy to opioids. Is it possible? Yes, but it is quite rare. What is more common, however, is for people to have a non-immunologic-related itching or reaction to opioids, which is not an allergic reaction, but can sometimes be confused with one because people get quite itchy. They may get flushing, and some patients, when they're prescribed opioids, are then subsequently listed as allergic to them. This is not a true allergy, but is related to, not to get too technical, but histamine release related to opioids, and that is really more of a a side effect than it is an allergy. It is possible for people to be allergic to other substances that people use, but it is quite rare. True immunologic allergic response such as anaphylaxis would look like people feeling dizzy, lightheaded, potentially even passing out, developing hives or what the medical term might be urticaria on the skin, itching, fast heartbeat, low blood pressure. Anaphylaxis is a true medical emergency And when you have that, it requires being treated in an acute care setting like an emergency department or being given epinephrine prior to arrival in the emergency department. But I would want to emphasize that that is quite rare with respect to the substances that people misuse, including opioids.
0: As you know, Hingham Cares' mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community in particular. So let's talk about teen use of substances. Why is that so much riskier than adult use?
1: It's an incredibly important point. Adolescents and even young adults have developing neurologic systems, especially as we understand it, the frontal lobes, which predominantly control executive functioning. Thus, adolescents with a developing neurologic system are potentially more susceptible to substance use and may be more at risk related to early exposure because early exposure in a developing brain can prime the brain for future substance use down the road as, as they get older. Epidemiologic research has shown that. The science is evolving. All of us are looking f- forward to future research on how exposure in adolescence affects um, developing neurologic systems.
0: In your opinion, or you know, based on the research, is there one substance in particular that teens are most susceptible to misusing?
1: The most commonly used substance um, amongst teens and young adults is alcohol. The um, Monitoring the Future study is probably the best source for information related to this. In brief summary, those aged 19 to 30, it's not exactly the age group you asked about, but it's the closest I have in uh, data on in t- the year 2021, of people in that age category reported past-year alcohol use, and 66% reported alcohol use within the past 30 days. So alcohol is the most commonly used substance. We know that alcohol use is associated with significant morbidity, including but not limited to car accidents, accidents that are um, unrelated to motor vehicles, we know that there is a significant problem related to alcohol-related death in this country, and I might share some information that was just published on this. Um, in Massachusetts, those aged 20 to 34, one in four deaths in that age group was directly attributed to alcohol use. It is also, of course, a national problem, and it was estimated that amongst those aged 20 to 49, one in five deaths in this country is related to alcohol. Pretty staggering.
0: Very staggering. Would that constitute an epidemic of sorts?
1: Yeah, I think about it as more of a silent epidemic because people people talk quite a bit, uh, understandably and deservedly so, about the opioid epidemic. Alcohol use has been, I think, less talked about recently as, alcohol, as, as opioid and other substance use has really increased quite dramatically in Massachusetts. But what we see here at South Shore Health is that alcohol uh, remains um, a larger problem by... St- by prevalence and people coming in to seek treatment, especially to the, um, to the emergency department and to the hospital. Here at our dedicated um, Gregan Center for Treatment, we have roughly a 50-50 mix of people seeking treatment for alcohol use disorder, and then the other half coming in for predominantly opioid use, but drug use in general.
0: With the people who come into the Gregan Center with substance or with alcohol use disorder, would you say that the majority of those people started drinking alcohol at a younger age, or is it more of a late-onset condition?
1: We definitely see both categories. There are a lot of people who have early exposure to alcohol use, as I said, because it, prime, it may prime their brain for future um, alcohol-related problems as they get older. However, it does not, it does not mean we, we do see patients who have later-in-life alcohol use that they that they were not exposed at a young age and they do develop alcohol use disorder later in life. We see many patients with that pattern, and so I encourage anybody who is experiencing negative consequences related to their alcohol use to seek treatment. There are effective FDA approved medications for alcohol use disorder which we offer, and we know that that in conjunction with counseling and peer recovery or recovery supports can be effective in reducing the harms of alcohol use disorder. In young adults, according to the Monitoring the Future study, importantly, binge alcohol use is defined by five or more drinks in one setting. Amongst those age 19 to 30 was 32%. Heavier alcohol use, which is, which is really quite staggering, actually, 10 or more drinks in one setting. And again, age 18, 19 to 30, 13% of people reported that in the last two weeks. Wow. Yeah, so I cannot underestimate the importance of, it's not my favorite term, but binge or heavy alcohol use on the health of our community. That is occurring, by the way, in the context of the Monitoring the Future study showing reductions, believe it or not, in past month, past year, and daily alcohol use. So I'm going to try to summarize that as that the trend overall is that maybe maybe less people are exposing themselves to alcohol, but those who do are doing so in a, in a more dangerous way with five or more or even ten or more drinks in one setting. And that is occurring, in, in my view, very high frequency. So um, you know, roughly one in three adolescents and young adults is reporting five or more drinks in, the, in one setting in the, in the last two weeks.
0: There's been a lot of research in the field of addiction, what causes it, how best to treat it. What do we know today that we didn't know a few years ago?
1: More information is known than in the past about the confluence of genetics, environment, and what I call psychosocial dynamics in people's lives, mainly around trauma and how people respond to trauma. The amount of trauma in our community, people seeking treatment, is is quite staggering. Many people are, are using alcohol or substances, at least anecdotally, related to how they cope with things that are going on in their life. But there is, there is also clearly, more clearly now, um, an element of a genetic predisposition that factors, that, is, that doesn't explain all of what we see. But when you combine genetics with environment and psychosocial factors. That is kind of how we conceptualize people's risk for alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder.
0: Do ACEs factor into the psychosocial component, the adverse childhood experiences? Absolutely. Is it possible to identify who is most susceptible to developing substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder?
1: Yeah, those same things apply as as it pertains to risk. Family history, genetics play a role. The more people are connected, whether that be with family, friends, community, tends to be a protective factor. Isolation is a big risk for substance or alcohol use. It's a risk, but also I would point out that substance or alcohol use is isolating in itself, and so people can easily enter a spiral where they're isolated. They may turn to alcohol or substances and become more isolated, which further leads to what happens to many of our patients, which is depressive or, or even anxious symptoms as they, as they enter this spiral of isolation, further isolation, and they have a hard time sometimes ex- exiting that. It's my belief that that is where peer supports and recovery community can make an impact in how we address alcohol and substance use disorder by connecting people to a community, a network, which can be um, a protective factor in people's recovery and a protective factor in, in preventing alcohol and substance use disorder.
0: Municipalities in Massachusetts are receiving opioid settlement funds, which is essentially compensation for the consequences of a widespread and devastating epidemic. In your opinion, what is the best use of those funds in light of the information that we have today about the harmfulness of opioids and mitigating factors that have been put in place?
1: I think the best way to approach this is to think about what we know in the medical research is effective in addressing opioid use disorder and preventing overdose and death. I would address this in basically three prongs, the first of which is opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution. It is clear from the medical research in Massachusetts and nationally that communities that have more access or distribution of naloxone in the community experience less opioid-related deaths. That includes education to people who are prescribed the other substances we talked about earlier, such as gabapentinoids and benzodiazepines, as it pertains to their risk of dying. The second prong is a strong public campaign to destigmatize medications for opioid use disorder, which we know are effective in preventing overdose and death. There are countless reproducible, large clinical trials showing that buprenorphine and methadone in particular reduce overdose deaths, reduce overdose episodes, improve someone's chance of being employed, reduce the risk of incarceration, reduce the risk of contracting infectious diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C, which are associated with opioid use. I cannot I cannot underscore the importance of that. And then the last piece is thinking about how do we prevent addiction from starting and how do we help physicians providers think about when are opioids appropriate and when are they not this is a challenging topic and probably the hardest of all of them because we don't have as much medical research on this in this area and it's my experience that providers are sometimes reluctant to withhold opioids for fear of treating people differently they want to treat everybody the same the community feels that Opioids are safe because they're relatively safe because they're they're prescription. What we need to do is educate people that even though these may be prescribed and it can be done safely, there are risks to everybody. And there are factors that may increase someone's risk of having unintentional overdose or developing addiction. It may be worth me spending a moment to, to elaborate a bit on what medications for opioid use disorder are and why they are important in this discussion about how do we prevent overdose death in this community, especially related, as you, as you asked me, to the funds coming to this community from settlements and other sources. We should be clear about what those are. Buprenorphine is a term that I used, and I just want to be clear what buprenorphine is. Buprenorphine is the active ingredient in suboxone and sublocade, I don't always use the street terms because they are brand names and I don't want to come off as I'm endorsing a particular brand. There are other brands of buprenorphine products, so I want to make that clear. But I think it is important here with this audience to educate a bit about what is buprenorphine and suboxone. This is a medication that has been studied, again, in countless reproducible clinical trials with successful outcomes. It is a partial opioid It works on the same receptors as other street drugs like heroin or fentanyl, and it helps people's brain normalize so they don't experience withdrawal or cravings or the push to use. The reason why it is so valuable and the reason why the federal government allowed for doctors to prescribe this for opioid use disorder is because it is very safe medication in that it only activates the parts of the brain that opioids work on partially. And so people in general, I'm generalizing here, cannot overdose or hurt themselves with buprenorphine or Suboxone. Because it works so well in the brain, it also prevents heroin, fentanyl, from attaching to the places in the brain that can lead to problems. So when people take this medication... Not only does it relieve withdrawal and cravings, but if somebody were to use, it protects the brain from those other street drugs. I think it's important to point out that methadone is also a highly stigmatized treatment that works similarly, as I just described, as buprenorphine or suboxone products. I do want people to understand what is out there because, and maybe we can talk about this, but... These are often misunderstood treatments and can be stigmatized in ways that, frankly, prevent people from reaching out. It can be stigmatized in the medical community because too often the treatment is not incorporated in general medicine, medical care. It is siloed in dedicated clinics that are only doing this treatment and can be hard to find sometimes. And in some cases, that can be destabilizing for people because you're sort of congregating or even mixing people who are actively using with people that are trying to find recovery. It's my belief that we need to normalize these treatments into general medical care, which is what South Shore Health is focused on doing and has incorporated these treatments into care that can be received at the hospital, but most importantly, outpatient treatment that can stabilize patients, and then helping them find that treatment embedded within primary care, which South Shore Health is also committed to and does at our primary care sites.
0: Do you see at some point on the horizon the medical community getting to the point where they've identified a genome or can conduct a blood test or do a mouth swab to identify similar to what we we can tell about people who have breast cancer in the family can take a test and you can determine whether or not um, you have the potential for um, also coming down with that disease. Is there something that the medical community will, some point that they'll reach where they can make that same determination about addiction?
1: I believe that others in academia are working on that science. It does not, to my knowledge, exist today. I believe others are working fervently to to advance the science to get it to that point. Looking down the road, as hopefully that develops, I think it will be important to consider what to do with that information, especially as it pertains to prescription medications, whether that be opioid pain medications or benzodiazepines. Let's also remember that alcohol is a legal substance and that we know from lots of other medical conditions that understanding one's risk is not usually sufficient to prevent people singularly from engaging in risky behavior. What I mean by that is we know, for example, that nicotine tobacco is associated with a host of medical problems, cancer, heart disease, vascular disease. But we also know that people who use tobacco simply knowing that fact, generally speaking, is not sufficient for people to stop. So while I think what you're asking about is incredibly important and will help advance the science and people's understanding of risk, I don't know that that will be the panacea in ending these epidemics. Addiction is defined as use of a substance despite negative consequences. So what I've learned is that highlighting negative consequences for people is singularly ineffective in treating or preventing people from going down that path because it is literally the definition of the disease.
0: What have you found in your experience to be the most successful preventative measures?
1: Exposure, exposure, exposure. Early exposure is a risk. Exposure in a way that causes physical dependence is a risk and I'll explain what physical dependence is. Physical dependence is use of a substance, whether that be alcohol or other things, such that the body, the brain system, literally needs that substance to feel normal. I'll be very clear. That happens to everybody who is alive on this planet with alcohol, opioids, pain medications, heroin, fentanyl, Benzodiazepines. You cannot avoid it. If you take a prescription medication, one of those prescription medications, for long enough and frequently enough, physical dependence will happen to you. What some people in this country have experienced is developing physical dependence at no fault of their own and then subsequently not having access to their prescription or having a life changing event, trauma or stressors, which can lead potentially in some patients to developing use despite negative consequences or addiction. So there is this subtle difference or important difference between physical dependence and addiction, yet they can be related because if you have physical dependence and lose access to your substance, that very much can lead quickly to use despite negative consequences because people will turn to the street where we know that pills in Massachusetts are very commonly pressed with fentanyl and other highly potent opioids, which, again, to be very clear, is a very big risk factor for overdose and death. Fentanyl has overtaken the drug supply in Massachusetts. Uh, 93% of opioid-related deaths in Massachusetts in 2021 Had fentanyl in toxicology reports, and I just, if I can, just for a second, point out that in 2021, there were more opioid-related deaths than in recorded history in Massachusetts. Over uh, 2,290 people died of opioid-related deaths, and just for a point of comparison, a decade ago in 2011, that number was 656. So the story I'm telling here is that opioids became relatively common in the 90s and even early 2000s. People became physically dependent on them, not any fault of their own. And I think what has shifted more recently is a better understanding in the medical community of their risks. In some cases, there is a tightening of supply, which has led some people to get wrapped up into street medications, street pills, which are increasingly deadly, because of the fentanyl, resulting, in my opinion, in that rise in death, opioid-related deaths. I I see many of these deaths as preventable with that pronged approach, which I've described earlier in this conversation. Overdose education, naloxone distribution, medications for opioid use disorder, counseling, and recovery supports.
0: As you mentioned earlier, Alcohol misuse is the most problematic substance misuse among youth. In Hingham in particular, we see that from the results of the Youth Risk Behavior Survey that's conducted, binge drinking and drinking in people's homes with or without the knowledge of their parents are the two biggest challenges that we face with our teen population. As we continue to address these issues through education and by encouraging kids to make healthy choices around drugs and alcohol, what do you think is the most salient point they should be made aware of when it comes to consumption of alcohol?
1: I believe that alcohol is normalized in our culture. That is in part related to its legality. Everybody knows that the legal age for drinking is 21. However, given its pervasiveness in American culture, I would argue even, even the family unit, exposure to alcohol, as you've pointed out, in people younger than 21, adolescents, is unfortunately too common. As we've been talking about today, early exposure to alcohol and other substances can prime the brain. We have developing brains that are being exposed to harmful substances. This predisposes people to, to problematic use later on in life, but I think quite importantly increases people's risk in adolescence for very serious health outcomes motor vehicle accidents, trauma. What is driving alcohol-related deaths amongst adolescents and young adults is its association with trauma. We should not underestimate that association. There are other related health and personal outcomes related to physical assault, sexual trauma, potentially unintended um, sexual behaviors, these are all things that can be, in many cases, tied directly to alcohol and, in my view, deeply impact our adolescent community. And parents and, and adults should understand that exposure to alcohol in this age group is is a serious thing and should be prevented.
0: You mentioned earlier that simply sharing information about the risks involved with a particular substance isn't is not necessarily a mitigating factor, that people are still going to engage in risky behavior, certainly youth- will continue to engage in risky behavior because of the brain development and you know, the fact that they're predisposed to that type of activity. Where do you see the community or adults, parents, what is their role in ensuring that kids are safe around alcohol in particular?
1: They have a huge role. So I think part of, well, let me clarify something about what I said about um, understanding risk. Understanding risk is important. But for people that have developed alcohol or substance use disorder, understanding or highlighting risk is likely not going to change the outcome of the disease. However, understanding risk for people that are contemplating exposure or maybe using alcohol or opioids or other substances but don't have a use disorder, understanding risk can be, an imp- can be important if presented in people in a way that is nonjudgmental. I think that can be important. What I would say to parents is modeling behavior around your children and adolescents is probably the most important thing that they can do. For example, if adults are using alcohol in ways, five or more drinks in one setting, what I think adolescents may take from that is a normalization that that is how people use alcohol. I would encourage parents to model behavior that they want out of their adolescence and have real discussions about what alcohol and other substances can do to the developing brain.
0: States that have adopted recreational use of marijuana continue to navigate this burgeoning industry. We have new high-potency products that are readily available, and many people are completely unfamiliar with what modern-day marijuana looks like, certainly that it's nothing like the marijuana of a generation ago. What would you say is the most important thing for young people to know about the use of marijuana in particular?
1: The same principles apply here. What we have seen recently is the, legaliz- the movement for legalization of recreational marijuana use in this community, which has the potential to have the unintended consequence of normalizing marijuana exposure to the general public, but especially adolescents. What we know about marijuana is that the THC content has been rising Over now decades, there is modest amount of medical research showing that exposure to THC in adolescence increases one's risk of developing thought process disorders or disorganized thinking, such as schizophrenia. There is also evidence that vaping THC is associated with lung injury. That was happening in a bigger way just before COVID-19 pandemic started. We are seeing that a bit less in part because I think there was evidence that COVID-19 resulted in in less vaping or smoking related to people's risk of getting COVID-19. People should not assume that because THC has been legalized, that it is safe.
0: One of the more popular misconceptions about marijuana, as you just touched upon, is that it's safe, that it's Healthy, a healthier alternative to other types of activities that people can engage in, however, we do know that there that marijuana has a specific effect on the brain. Could you describe what that effect is?
1: THC affects clinically everyone a, a bit differently. I don't think that there's one characterization because there are many different um, potencies of THC that people can use. There's different ways of ingesting THC whether that be smoking, vaping, eating. There are also different, um, uh, if you go to a marijuana dispensary, as I understand it, they, 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 they try to sell people on different strains, if you will, for various outcomes that people may be after. I think it's, it's quite important for people to understand that legalization does not imply safety. I understand that, that there was also a movement before legalization for the medicalization of marijuana, in my humble opinion, that was not a good thing for to just to use that term, um, because medicalization implies for some people that it went through the traditional FDA approval process. I think we should be clear that that never happened, and using the term medicalization, I think, is quite unfortunate. And and giving, again, just my personal opinion, giving providers, physicians, the ability to prescribe something outside of the traditional approval process um, was a mistake.
0: Another popular misconception is that marijuana is not addictive, in your opinion, and based on the research. Is that accurate?
1: Based on the research, marijuana can cause addiction. Where I think this this misconception comes out of is that the incidence or the rate at which people develop marijuana addiction amongst those who are exposed may be relatively low. To answer your question directly, it is possible for marijuana to cause addiction. Again, defining addiction as use despite negative consequences. The other thing I will say is that it may be harder for some people or families to pick up on negative consequences related to marijuana use comparing relatively to other drug use. An example of that might be Also, thinking about nicotine. Really, you have to really think about medical consequences of nicotine to really hone in on how is that affecting someone negatively. Marijuana is probably similar. However, there are people who develop serious negative consequences to their life related to marijuana use, difficulty with employment, problems with interpersonal relationships, isolation, medical consequences, as we've touched on thought process disorders. Trauma, a big theme of today is trauma, right? People are at risk for risky behaviors. And so I think people sometimes underestimate or under-recognize how marijuana can affect their lives negatively in those domains, which leads, in my opinion, likely to an under-reporting of the risk of addiction related to marijuana.
0: Is it possible to overdose on marijuana?
1: I think it depends a bit about how you define overdose. Um, is it possible to consume too much THC such that you need acute medical care and you need stabilization from a thought or psychiatric standpoint? Absolutely. But if, you, if you're asking, you know, does it lead to overdose in the sense of, you know, respiratory depression or stopping breathing and death, uh, no, it does not. It does not result in respiratory changes.
0: And is that due to the fact that it does not impact that part of the brain?
1: Right. So THC works on the uh, endocannabinoid system, which is a separate uh, uh, neurochemical system than than systems that work on respiratory drive.
0: Could you share your knowledge of? The types of things that the emergency room is seeing, in particular with youth and their excessive use of alcohol and excessive consumption or use of marijuana products.
1: I'm going to start with a general statistic here as it pertains to what we see in the emergency department. In a representative month, recent month in 2021, roughly 20% of the ED volume was primarily a behavioral health issue. So that means one in five visits, roughly, in a representative month were coming to the emergency department with a behavioral health problem. Some of those presentations were substances, not all of them. Some of them were related to um, mental health only without substance use. What we are seeing in general is we still see large numbers of people coming to the ED, both adults. More so adults, but we do have adolescents coming related to alcohol problems. We have completely changed how we screen for and address these issues in our emergency department, if I can briefly comment about that. Everybody who checks into the emergency department is screened for unhealthy alcohol and substance use using standard approach, validated, researched tools. If patients screen positive for unhealthy use, we have dedicated clinicians that come and talk to those people about their unhealthy use and do what is called a brief intervention and, when appropriate, referral to treatment. A brief intervention is a patient-centered, motivational interviewing-enhanced discussion talking about risk, health effects, and looking for negative consequences that require further intervention. We do roughly 300... Of those brief interventions per month in our emergency department to give you a sense for the scope of so how many people
0: average of 10 a day.
1: Yes, I can also tell you that system wide that includes the hospital, it includes the addiction programs here and the primary care South Shore Medical Center. Since we started doing this in November 2019, roughly 21,000 people have been identified by their provider as having an alcohol or substance use disorder. To give you a sense, the addiction team that I oversee here has touched roughly 10% of those 21,000 people. So it gives you a sense for the scope, but I think importantly, the need to help enhance people's willingness to come and get specialty care to reduce the burden of these diseases for themselves, their families, and the community. There are patients, adolescents that come to the ER having used marijuana. It is somewhat rare for these interactions to lead to subsequent specialty care. I think this is related to a relative unwillingness for people to recognize negative consequences around marijuana, in particular, and in in my opinion, it is also related to the stigma associated with being labeled, if you will, as having an addiction. A big part of what I do and what I want to address today is stigma. We must destigmatize these conditions. We must normalize them, and we must disseminate factual. Evidence-based information. One of the challenges we have around marijuana use disorder, especially as it pertains to adolescents who come to the emergency department, is we, there's a relative lack of evidence-based treatment. We don't have FDA-approved medications to treat marijuana use disorder. So counseling can help. Addressing when it exists mental health concerns, providing recovery supports can be important. But I'll be clear, treating marijuana use disorder looks very different than what we have available for other things, including alcohol and opioid use disorder. That is why prevention of this disorder is so important, and understanding to your earlier question that, yes, it can lead to a disorder, it appears that it does so less commonly than other s- drugs of misuse which is how i think people have come to this misnomer that it is safe and does not lead to addiction which in my view further stigmatizes those who end up with use despite negative consequences around marijuana because they feel like somehow this can't be them or you know this can't be happening because i was told it couldn't so it can be very challenging to engage some of these adolescents in a in in that in that type of conversation because they've been told their whole life and seen, you know, that this won't lead to addiction or it is a real problem. And I should not underestimate the amount that marijuana, alcohol, and, and other substances lead to associated risky behavior that results in people coming to the emergency department.
0: This has been a truly enlightening conversation, Dr. Kerensky. I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about the important topic of addiction and in particular preventative measures that we can be taking as a community, as parents, as family members, loved ones, um, to prevent addiction in our youth population. So I appreciate your time and look forward to hopefully talking with you again sometime.
1: Be happy to. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You have been listening to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Root, and I hope that you will join us again. Thank you. For more info or to get involved, go to HinghamCares.org.